Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Carrie Baldwin, and I'm guest hosting today. And we're talking about all of the 2022 Supreme Court decisions that have been passed down. And I've got Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center here to chat with us about this. So hi, Mike. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah, it's my favorite thing, the Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems like I think I read... Oh man, I forget how many there were, how many decisions came down in June, but there were a ton that came down in June. Yeah, for sure. We're obviously not going to be able to talk about all of them, but we're going to talk about four of them. And there are four that have been really talked about in libertarian circles quite a bit. I want to start with the New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus, oh, what is it? Burren? My notes just have New York. So oh, okay. I can't, I can't the remember. Bruin. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, there we go. So at any rate, why don't you tell us a little bit about this case and then we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, so this was a uh, challenge to New York's concealed carry permitting scheme. And the difference between New York and a lot of other concealed carry permits is that New York used what is known as a may issue system, whereas most states have a shall issue system. And and legally, the difference there is in a shall issue, if you meet the criteria that are spelled out, then the state is obligated to provide that license. On a may issue basis, you actually have to fulfill certain things that the state, you know, the state has more power to reject your uh, application is, is really the bottom line. And the way they were using that in New York is effectively making it very difficult, if not impossible, to get a concealed carry permit. You basically had to prove that uh, you had a need. And, you know, when you're trying to prove something like that to the government, it's not necessarily an easy thing. So the court basically struck this down and kind of built on the Heller decision that that folks have probably heard of, basically said that a May issue concealed carry permit like this violates the Second Amendment. Although it's important for people to understand it's really not a Second Amendment case so much as it is a 14th Amendment case Mm. because it is a purely state issue. So my view on this case is that while Obviously, I like the result. I think it's better that people can more easily get a concealed carry permit. I think in a broader liberty context that allowing the federal government through the courts to impose their will upon the various states is a a dangerous precedent that will end up yielding far more bad decisions in the long run than they will good ones. So I would argue that this should have been handled in in state court or uh, through state processes, not through the federal government. But you know that's a whole different ball of wax from really just the basis of this. So in essence, the Supreme Court has made it much easier for folks to get a concealed carry permit based on the Second Amendment. This will not only affect New York, it'll also affect several other states, including Maryland, California, New Jersey, and probably some others. Yeah, I see Hawaii and Massachusetts as well. Right. Now, there's three categories, it seems to me, with concealed carry permits. There's the May issue, mm-hmm. and then the shall issue, and then you mm-hmm. have constitutional carry, which doesn't actually permit right. anything. So what this effectively does is shoots down this ability for states to have a May issue rule. Is that correct? Yeah, effectively. Um, I think what they're going to try, the states will try to do is they'll look at the wording of the decision and they'll try to formulate their concealed carry permitting process within those parameters. And it's interesting because we've already seen this. If folks have been paying attention to the news, New York has already put out some new guidelines. And one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to require people who are trying to get concealed carry to give their social media accounts to the authorities so that the, uh, the authorities can vet them. And this is directly a consequence of the way 
the opinion was written that talks a lot about the idea that, you know, keeping dangerous individuals for having guns. So I'm sure that the lawyers in New York can argue, well, this is our way of, of doing exactly what the Supreme Court said we're allowed to do. And this, again, is the danger. This is the danger that I see more broadly with relying on the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. is that what you're doing is you're effectively policymaking for the entire United States. And what you'll see is that they'll look at these opinions and, and then they'll try to work whatever way they can to kind of work around the, the legalities of it to get the policy outcomes that they want to get. I don't know. It just, in the long run, this stuff never seems to work out badly. I've, I've argued too, and, you know, other people will debate this with me, but I think that the way that this whole thing is framed opens the door for so called assault rifles to be banned because of mm. this. There's this real emphasis on using weapons that are common for defense. So that was kind of the big argument in this that handguns are common for defense. You carry a handgun for defense. Therefore, since defense is one of the primary reasons for the Second Amendment, then therefore you can't stop people from carrying this common weapon for defense. Somebody's going to make the argument that you don't need an assault rifle, mm -hmm. quote unquote, for defense. And they may be able to win based on that legal language, in, in which case then you're going to end up with a national assault rifle ban. So I don't know. I'm just, you know, as people will find, I'm not a huge fan of kind of this, I would call it judicial activism, because really, in effect, what you're doing is you are, you're wrecking the constitutional system. Mm -hmm. The federal system was designed so that you had most policymaking being done at the state level. When you start allowing the courts to effectively veto state law, which is what this is doing, then you're opening a Pandora's box. And we've seen over the past that, you know, okay, and yes, I will grant you that this is a, a nice opinion. But when you look at other things the court has done, most of the time it's siding with government power. The incorporation doctrine has eviscerated the Fourth Amendment and basically given cops free reign. So, you know, there's the dark side of it that people kind of that's why I'm not really, really excited about this whole thing. I think there's a lot of a lot of dangerous things, although from a policy standpoint, you know, it's, yeah. it's certainly a win. Can you, for our listeners who aren't aware or maybe have forgotten, what is the incorporation doctrine? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. So 14th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War. And really what the purpose of the 14th Amendment was is to ensure that the freed slaves were considered full and equal citizens of the United States. Right. And, and this was, a lot of it was because of the Dred Scott decision and the fact that in Dred Scott, the court basically said that black people couldn't be citizens even if they were free. Mm -hmm. And so they really needed a constitutional amendment to ensure that these newly freed slaves would have all of the privileges and immunities that are available to any other American. So the first debate is what do they mean by privileges and immunities. And if you go back, it's really pretty clear. And this was argued when the 14th Amendment was being debated and ratified. It basically constitutionalized the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And there were actually a list of privileges and immunities that were protected in that Civil Rights Act. They included the ability to travel, make contract, to own land, these kind of basic things that you have to be able to do to function in society. About 50 years after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, the court suddenly discovered the incorporation doctrine, which effectively allowed the courts to apply the Bill of Rights to the state governments. A lot of people don't even realize the fact that the Bill of Rights, when it was written and ratified, was never intended and, and never understood to control the actions of states. And it's really easy to prove this. You look at the First Amendment and this idea that uh, there could be no establishment of religion, and yet you had Massachusetts that had a, a state church well into the 1800s. Mm -hmm. So the Bill of Rights isn't something that gives you rights. Right. Uh, it isn't something that endows you with rights. It doesn't establish rights. All it was intended to do was limit federal power to ensure that federal government could not infringe upon these rights and others, thus the Ninth Amendment. And really, you can argue that the, the Bill of Rights wasn't even necessary. And, and actually, some of the founders did argue that because the federal government is already limited. So- mm -hmm. If the federal government is not empowered to do X, then it shouldn't be doing X, Bill of Rights notwithstanding. So I could argue that the Second Amendment isn't even really necessary. There is no 
delegation of power in the Constitution for the federal government to regulate firearms. So they shouldn't be doing it. Most state constitutions have very similar provisions as well. And that's that's how I see things should work. If you don't like a policy at your state level, I would prefer it to be worked at at the state level instead of making the federal government a liberty enforcement squad, which again, I can't emphasize enough is typically not a good idea. Right, a liberty enforcement squad. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, and we've got we've we've sort of come full circle, I think, in viewing the Supreme Court as sort of the final arbiter on anything constitutional, and that seems to have gotten us into quite a bit of hot water with a number of things. I mean, not even this issue with regards to gun rights and things. I can imagine that a lot of these states that now have to switch from may issue to shall issue will just create regulations that that are almost impossible to obtain the shall issue right. criteria. So it's a distinction without a difference, you might say. And the issue is that different states are different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we need to reckon with. I think most people view the United States as this singular thing. Yeah. And it's not. It's really a union of 50 individual states. And New Mexico is very different from Florida, which is very different from California, which is very different from New York. Yep. So it's not surprising that, you know, I, I think if you were to go and do polling in New York, probably the majority of the people like their strict gun rules. That's just the nature of their political society. Now, I disagree with it. I wouldn't want to live under that circumstance. But on the flip side of it, this is an interesting thing. I've I've talked to Michael Bolden, who's the founder and the executive director of the 10th Amendment Center. We've talked about this a little bit. The fact that, you know, all of us who love liberty have different conceptions of what liberty means and what's really important to us in a policy basis. So, You could have a person that would feel more free in California Mm -hmm. because they can walk into a store and buy weed than they would in Kentucky where you have permitless carry because they don't care anything about carrying a gun. That's not the thing that is important to them. So, you know, I think it's important to, to realize that maybe, you know, our conceptions of liberty can be different even from a individual to a regional basis. Yeah. And again, I'm not excusing, you know, people say, well, Mike, you just want states to just trample all over our rights. Well, no, I'm philosophically an anarchist. So I don't think the state should exist at all. Right, right. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how can we create the most space for liberty? And I think it's better done in a decentralized system where mm-hmm. if you really hate the gun laws in, in New York, move to Florida. But please yeah. don't bring your awful politics with you. <laughs> right. um, you know, if having access to marijuana is something very important in you, then then you have the ability to move to a California or a, a state that has that. And we have the ability to leave oppression that oppresses us specifically. Mm. Whereas when everything is centralized, you have a situation of it's one or the other. You know, and, mm-hmm. and there's no there's no escape. There's no competition. I know I keep getting off of the Supreme Court case, but this is like my thing when it yeah. comes to when it comes to this whole idea of nationalism versus republicanism or, or federalism, right. as well, it's I, commonly called. I think it's a good thing to remember, even for Christian libertarians, because I've seen in our Facebook group, we don't agree on a lot of things, you know, like social issues and things right. of that nature. And so it makes sense that at the very least the federal government shouldn't be controlling a lot of things that have wiggle room or should have wiggle room such that, you know, we can choose to go live in a state that has more strict rules versus not. Right. That makes sense. You know, I think most people intuitively understand why we don't want economic monopoly. Mm -hmm. You know, people, if I say Walmart should be the sole provider of groceries, Right. Everybody would be like, no, that's a horrible idea. And they would intuitively know why. They would tell you, oh, you're going to have higher prices. You're going to have less selection. Yeah. You're going to get awful service. All of the things we know that come with monopolies. Well, these same people want to monopolize government at the federal level. And you get all of the same bad results. Yes. You get higher taxes or higher prices. You get bad service. You get yep. bad policy. And then that is enforced and imposed on 320 million people. And, and I think that The notion fundamentally that nine unaccountable, unelected, politically connected lawyers are basically making policy for the entire 
population in the United States is a really dumb system of government, even if it was legitimate, which I would argue it's not. It's not a very good way to uh, organize society. And yet here we are. Now, granted, most of the court cases, or not most, but some of the ones we're going to discuss have actually, I think, taken steps forward of actually unwinding mm. some of the judicial overreach that we've had in the past. So that's, you know, that's certainly a positive. But by and large, I, I just, I don't know. A friend of mine calls the Supreme Court judicial temple monkeys. And I know that's really disrespectful, <laughs> but I don't mind disrespecting politically connected lawyers <laughs> that are trying to run my life. So. Right. All right, let's move on to Kennedy v. Bremerton. This was the school prayer case with the coach who led a voluntary, I'm assuming Christian prayer at a, I think a football game, right? Yeah, it was football. So tell me, tell me about that case. So this is where you really see the tension between, I think you would find people who are liberty minded Mm -hmm. that would be on both sides of this. On the one side, you can say this coach has the liberty, the right to pray and to speak. So the First Amendment, his personal First Amendment rights. And then you have the idea that the government, and he's the representative of the government as a teacher, shouldn't be injecting religion in the public school. So you can see that tension. I mean, we we could argue about the nuts and bolts of that all day. Mm-hmm. Effectively, what this court has, has said is they've kind of thrown the balance to his right as an individual to lead a prayer as long as it's not being coerced, as long as it's not being you know, a requirement, that he has that right to express. There's a lot of people who are mad about it. I've, I've seen the cartoons where apparently now we're going to have uh, demonic prayers in school classrooms. I don't know. Right. Um, you know, to me, again, just kind of going back to what I was saying before, this idea that nine judges are going to make this decision. Yeah. You have nine judges who are going to decide whether or not some coach can pray on the sideline of a football game. It's just really weird to me, right? Well, and this seems like a perfect opportunity to say, hey, maybe education shouldn't be paid for by tax dollars. Yeah. You know, maybe this is the opportunity to say, we're already talking about school choice. We're already talking about sort of pulling back on all of that. This is another reason why public schooling, taxpayer-funded schooling, is such a problem. Right. Because you do have conflict on the issue, and there's even good arguments on both sides of the issue. Sure. And it seems like the solution to that problem is to just not have the government in charge of it. Yeah. You know, and if you didn't, then you would have a situation where... I don't know if you'd call them school districts in the absence of the state, but mm-hmm. you know whoever's running these schools, they would obviously be different private entities. They would have their own guidelines and yep. criteria, and you could pick and choose and say, you know, I don't want my kid doing Christian prayer on the sideline of the football team, so we're going to go to this school district over here, or this this schooling system, right. um, and you would create true uh, true choice. That's really to me liberty yeah. is the ability to make those decisions for ourselves, and and I. I certainly understand, you know, somebody that wouldn't want their kid to feel obligated to participate in a prayer that they were uncomfortable with. I get that, mm-hmm. you know. Again, I have to ask the question, though, why have we made everything a federal case? Right. Well, there's there's a related case, Carson versus Macon, that was about invalidated a main tuition program ruling that the state cannot bar religious schools from receiving public grants extended to other private schools. So this has to do with probably connected to vouchers or this idea that tax dollars should follow the child and things like that. And so they ruled that Maine could not withhold these tax dollars just on the basis of schools and their religious beliefs you know, the, the fact that they were a religious school. Right. I know we didn't talk about this particular case, but given the prayer in school case, I'd love to get sort of your off-the-cuff comment about how now taxpayer dollars will be allowed to be used to fund religious education. Yeah, that's a hard one for me because I don't think there should be tax dollars. <laughs> and, but I think you, you've kind of hit on the the key point is that there's really no way to satisfactorily kind of come to any policy that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. you, on the one hand, you can argue that, well, as you know, a taxpayer, I'm obligated to pay the tax whether I have kids in school or not. Right. Um, if I want to 
send my kid to a different type of education. I'm paying the tax money. Why should I be locked out of that fund that's supposed to be for the betterment of society? I'm part of society, right? Mm -hmm. By the same token, I think there is a very real need for separation of church and state. I mean, we don't want the state to ultimately be sponsoring a religion. We can see the problems with that. Mm -hmm. So how do you walk that tightrope? I don't know. So your view on that particular case is going to depend on whether or not you favor religious schools or not. You know, right. it's, it's not even really a constitutional issue in my view. You know, it's a money issue. Yeah, they connected it to the uh, separation of church and state, which of course right. isn't actually in the constitution. Right. <laughs> But yeah, I'm sort of, I'm of the opinion now, I, I guess I'd heard that there's a voucher system somewhere. I think Maine has has the voucher system. And then you have something called education savings accounts, which is what Arizona just passed, which is supposed to be easier to get access to those dollars than through the voucher system. But it really seems to me like if the money should follow the student, then the money should just stay in parents' pockets and we shouldn't you know, there's no need for the state to become a middleman for education. It's like, okay, I'm going to pay you my property tax and then you're going to store it in a savings account and then I can't get it back until, you know, I'm ready to educate my child in, in whatever school program you have approved for that account. It just seems like that's extra steps that are completely unnecessary if the principle is these dollars should follow the students. Right, right. You know, my my own personal gut is that the parents should have as much latitude to choose as possible mm -hmm. because, again, they're paying for it. Now, that still leaves the question of, you know, what about me? I don't need kids in public school anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't plan on ever having any more. Right. I guess I could have could feasibly have grandkids yeah. um, in, in the school system. But why am I funding this? Of course, the mm -hmm. argument is the social contract and it's for the social good and, and yeah. all of this, which is debatable, of course. Um, real quick, you know, people will say, okay, Mike, <laughs> smarty pants, you're saying that the First Amendment shouldn't apply to the states. Well, what's Washington going to do? Well, Section 11 of the Declaration of Rights in the Washington State Constitution, I, I believe that that's where the, Washington was the state where the, the prayer case was. It was either Washington mm. or Oregon, but mm -hmm. um, it's, here's their religious freedom. Absolute freedom of conscience in all matters of religious sentiment, belief, and worship shall be guaranteed to every individual, and no one shall be molested or disturbed in person or property on account of religion. And it goes on, talks about uh, no public money shall be appropriated for or applied to any religious worship exercise or instruction. So, a lot of this stuff doesn't have to be a federal case. You can yeah. actually adjudicate it through your state constitutions and, and through um, through your state courts. But yeah. instead, everybody wants to make it a uh, a federal case. And again, when when it happens, that opinion ends up being imposed on everybody. Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's move on to one of the bigger ones. I think is one of the bigger ones. This is West Virginia versus the EPA. Yeah. What's your take on this one? So this, I think, is it's interesting because in one, I, I think overall, it's a good decision. Mm -hmm. I think it has rolled back the scope of government power. So in effect, this all goes to, oh, I can't even remember what it's called. The Obama administration created it. It was the clean air something, something. Right. So there were various iterations of this. And the long and short of it is the court has held that none of this was authorized by Congress, mm -hmm. that the EPA has taken some very broad power given by the uh, Congress and then run with that far beyond what could be justified. Um, so it has reigned in the bureaucratic state. And this is how it should be, right? If you right. think about separation of powers, the Legislative branch is supposed to make laws, and the executive branch is supposed to put those laws into execution. That means that the laws that Congress are making should be specific. It's not, we're going to create this agency and let it make the rules. Right. That violates separation of power. You're putting legislative authority in the executive branch where there is no oversight and accountability. That's the huge problem with these things. The EPA is creating all of these rules that have um, extreme impact on industry individuals. And it's not just the EPA, obviously. It's all of these alphabet agencies. Right. And so 
the way Congress, Congress does this on purpose because then they can say, well, it's not our fault because the EPA did it. Well, no, you gave them that latitude. The Congress should lay out that regulatory structure, vote on it and pass it, and then the EPA puts that thing into execution. Instead, what they're doing is uh, Congress is basically saying, we're going to give the EPA the power to make air clean, and then the EPA gets to do whatever it wants in pursuit of that. It's it's a total violation of um, separation of powers, and it has created just horrible consequences for industry and businesses and micromanaging and, and effectively made a bunch of unaccountable bureaucrats, which are even worse than unaccountable lawyers, right. <laughs> um, in charge of, of these huge swaths of regulating the economy. So this West Virginia case kind of slaps that back and said, they said, look, if you want to create this regulatory program for clean air, then Congress needs to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and then the EPA can implement. And this is where I diverge. I don't think the EPA constitutionally has uh, any, any authority to exist in to begin with, and there's no delegated power to Congress uh, to make rules about clean air. So really, the federal government shouldn't be involved in this at all. So in a way, the court is, is, you know, it's kind of resting on what I think is an unconstitutional precedent, it's not the right word, but an unconstitutional idea to begin with. But at least it rolls it back a little bit um, in in this particular case and and will require Congress to act. Now, all the people are like, oh my gosh, we've got climate change and now Congress, they can't get anything done. And uh," which, you know, to me is like, well, good. I don't want Congress to get anything done. But that's supposed to be the nature of what government does. It's supposed to be debated. It's supposed to be done by the representatives of the people. Some dude in the EPA office this isn't my representative. I would argue that congressman's not my representative either, but right. you know, at least in political theory, the guy that's elected to Congress on my behalf is supposed to be representing me. Um, EPA dude's not representing anybody other than probably some whole company or something right. somewhere. Well, and it's supposed to be, supposed to be our system of government, this constitutional system of government is supposed to be adversarial. Like you get, right. you get a ton of people who are like, why can't Congress just come together and agree? And it's like, that's not even how it's set up. Yeah. You know, the other thing is that we have so many of these bureaucratic federal agencies. And correct me if I'm wrong, but don't all of those fall under the executive branch of government? Yes. See, I don't think a lot of people quite understand that and how the administration, whoever is in the seat of, you know, office of the president, their administration extends out to those agencies. And if those agencies are able to create new rules that are then supposed to be legally binding in some way, then they've just circumvented the legislative side. Yeah, we've hit the nail on the head. That's the whole problem with this with this process as it's evolved. And that's the big issue with executive orders. Mm. You know, you've got the president when effectively what most executive orders are today is, you know, Joe Biden saying, okay, EPA, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And then the EPA takes this executive order on the authority of the president, and then they make a bunch of rules. And, you know, they'll claim, well, it's under our congressional mandate to make clean air. And effectively, what has just happened is Joe Biden's passed the law. Yep. And of course, it's not just Joe Biden. It, Donald Trump did it. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama, you know, he famously talked about, well, I've got my pen and my phone. Yeah. Um, you know, but here's the thing that's frustrating to me is that nobody wants overreaching executive power until their guy's the president. Yep. You know, everybody on the right was like, oh my gosh, Obama, you know, these executive orders, it's awful. Oh, this is horrible. And then Trump comes in, he starts writing executive orders, and then they're sending me nasty emails saying, I can't believe you're criticizing Trump for these great executive orders that he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a lesson that I think everybody would do well to learn. The power that you give somebody to do something good today can be used to do something bad in the Mm -hmm. future. When you put that power in play, you ultimately have no control over how that power is used. And that's what we've seen happen in this country with this great divide. Everybody's in this wrestling match for this power. And when 
you're out. Everybody's like, no, no, we got to limit the power, limit the power. But then once they get power, they want the power. So they expand it. And then the next person that comes in has even more power. And um, yeah, so, you know, that's the one silver lining. Again, I'm not a big fan of the courts, but with these types of rulings like EPA, it at least reigns in some of that rulemaking that you and I have absolutely no control over. Right. And uh, and it will p- put it back into the arena where it's supposed to be in that adversarial arena where the representatives are hammering this stuff out. Now, I, I will quibble with you. I think we do have bipartisanship in Congress. They can totally agree when it comes to spying on you. Yeah. When it comes to war. <laughs> right. And when it comes to uh, printing more money. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll go in lockstep on that. So. Oh, yeah. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. I think it was Thomas Massey, actually, who pointed out, and I forget if it was Trump who was in office or Biden who was in office, but there was a huge spending bill sort of in the midst of the lockdowns and the pandemic. And this was the spending bill that Thomas Massey was saying, hey, we need to have you know the vote. I forget right. the actual words, but basically take a record of who voted for what. Mm-hmm. because, of course, he knew that that was going to have a major impact on things like inflation. And he was resisted by his colleagues. And now we don't know who voted in favor of that spending bill and who didn't. And that's very typical of the behavior of Congress. And, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of the problems that we see when it comes to separation of powers in the federal government, it's the fact that Congress has basically usurped its responsibilities mm-hmm. because... Congress critters like to be able to go back to their district Mm -hmm. and not have to give account for anything. So, you know, the the easier it is for them to push things off to somebody else, the the more they're going to do it. You you see this, especially when it comes to war powers. You know, the the Congress is is the entity that should be declaring war very specifically. Like, if we're going to go send troops into Somalia, then that should be specifically authorized by Congress. But instead, they do these, you know, these authorizations to use force. They're sending troops today into Somalia based on the authorization to use force after 9-11. Wow. I mean, it's just absurd. Wow. But that's the way it works. And Congress likes it that way because, well, uh, I didn't pass that, you know. Yeah, uh, it's not my fault. The president decided to do that. Yeah, they can um, deflect. Yeah. Um, okay, last but certainly not least um, is Dobbs v. v. Jackson, the overturning of Roe and Casey. Yeah. Lots, less people aren't mentioning Casey, but it overturns both Roe and Casey. So what's the deal? Are we living in The Handmaid's Tale now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, again, this is, um, it's really interesting because I think most people, they view constitutionality based on whether I like the policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, if if you're if you're somebody that's quote unquote pro-choice, you are just having fits. This is the dumbest legal reasoning ever in the history of the world. It's unconstitutional. Of course, none of them have read it. But, you know, just and then and then on the flip side of it, you know, the 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 pro-life side, they like it because it advances the policy. Let's step back for a second and try to turn the emotion off, which I know mm-hmm. is hard when on this subject, and just look at it from 
a legal constitutional standpoint. This was the right decision. The federal government, first off, has no authority to regulate abortion or health care or life. It doesn't. And... Uh, you know, the reason there's there's a very important large set of political powers that are 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 technically known as police powers. Police powers are basically the underlying authority to make laws in terms of property rights and and life and stuff. So that's why, by and large, if you murder somebody, you're going to be charged in a state court mm-hmm. because states have police powers. And interestingly, different states have different criteria for what constitutes first-degree murder, manslaughter. Right. You'll, you'll see that variation in there. Um, and, and really, abortion should be handled in the same way. It should be mm-hmm. a state issue. It comes under police powers. And most people haven't. But anybody who's ever actually read Roe v. Wade, it's almost incomprehensible from a legal standpoint. Yeah. Even a lot of legal scholars who are very much in support of the idea, um, will tell you that it, it was just very poorly reasoned. And the reasoning, and I haven't read the the entire case. I've read the entire syllabus of Dobbs. Yeah. And from from what you read there, it's it's very logical reasoning that this is yeah. something that really should be handled at the state level. Now, people have to understand they've not made abortion legal. It wasn't really illegal in the first place. They're just saying that there is no constitutional right. It's yeah. interesting as I was reading through this. You know, a lot of people, particularly libertarians, want to make it a bodily autonomy argument. The courts not making that argument at all. Right. Uh, and in fact, they 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 flat out said we don't want to make this a bodily autonomy argument because then we could say that you have a constitutional right to uh, marijuana or a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the federal government doesn't really have any authority to ban prostitution. I don't think it does um, ban prostitution. It doesn't have the authority to regulate six plants growing in a woman's backyard, despite what the Supreme Court said. Yeah. So, you know, I think that this was a good case in terms of just the legal argument of it. Casey Rowe should have been overturned because none of it makes any sense whatsoever from a legal constitutional standpoint. It was uh, a lot of, of legal gymnastics and twisting of language in order to mm. create some type of right that never did exist. Right. Yeah, there's... I have not finished reading through the actual decision. It is so long. I think it's like 92 or 98 pages right. long. That's just the majority decision. It doesn't include any of the concurrences or, or the dissents. Right. Remind me, because this is something that's been going around that I think is untrue, but... So one of the major concerns from the pro-choice side is that Justice Thomas's words in his concurrence about reevaluating things like contraception and gay marriage and all that, they think that that has some sort of, like the, the court is now going to, or that that creates some sort of legal standing to actually challenge contraception or gay marriage at the state level. It's my understanding that the concurrence has no legal standing, at least in relation to the majority decision. And the majority decision explicitly said, this has nothing to do with contraception. It has nothing to do right. with gay marriage. Right. You're, you're exactly correct. The concurrence, the, the, the governing law is what is contained in where there is agreement between the majority justices. Right. So you, basically the majority opinion, a concurrence adds to or takes away from, and, and their vote is still there, but it's the, nothing in a concurring opinion is legally binding any more than, you know, you have a dissenting opinion as well, which is mm-hmm. going to make its own legal arguments. And, and they're interesting to read because, you know, if the tenor of the court were to change over time, then, then you could see some of these dissenting ideas come into play. Right. But no, they're not, they're not law. So basically that's, uh, that's Clarence Thomas making his opinion known yeah. and uh, but but it's not it's not some type of uh 
well, now we must look at these other decisions. And, right. and I don't think that they will. I think that the, the the gay marriage issue has a little bit of a different twist to it because it, it's really, that's more of a contractual argument. And mm-hmm. you can you can argue the fact that um, in, in the constitutional system, states are obligated to recognize contracts made in other states. Um, you know, so... That's a whole different ball of yeah, wax, but yeah. but I think that is I think that is overplayed. That you know the idea that um, this is going to unwind all of these other other precedents. I, I think that this is the thing that was really surprising about this is the fact that they did overturn precedent, right? And I, I think people who don't follow the legal system um, really probably grasp the significance of that because for the most part, lawyers view precedent as like stuff chiseled in stone handed mm-hmm. down from Mount Sinai. Yeah. Um, they're very reluctant to to go back and undo something that another court has done. I think the fact that Roe uh, and Casey were so obviously absurd mm-hmm. from a reasoning standpoint made them more willing to take steps to undo that precedent. And it's happened before. But you know, I, I don't think we should take that as a signal that you know they're going to go back and overturn Wickard versus Bilburn, which was the uh, the landmark case where the uh, federal government asserted the right to regulate wheat in somebody's yard, even if it doesn't enter interstate commerce, because it might affect interstate commerce somehow via voodoo. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're not going to undo that one. So, right. uh, but it is really surprising that they were willing to. Um, to consider that precedent and overturn it. But I don't think we should see this, that they're just going to run roughshod over. Yeah. There, there's just too much of a respect for it. It is it is very much a almost a religious tenet among lawyers that precedent is very sacred and you have to have a whole lot of... Um, a whole lot of reason yeah. to overturn it. I think the other thing that should be pointed out is that um, literally what, what they do with jobs is only kick the issue back to the states. Correct. Um, and, you know, I was a little concerned when the Alito leak came out. I was like, man, uh, they could really screw this one up if they, <laughs> if they, don't, write, if they don't write a good decision on that. Right. Um, but literally what they do is just kick it back to the states, right. which is interesting because, you know, you have all the, the pro-life uh, side of this celebrating it. I mean, for good reason, because there are states that do want to ban abortion. Right. Um, but nobody on the pro-choice side seems to understand that this means that they can actually expand abortion rights in their states. Yeah, absolutely. Um, both Roe and Casey were delimiting in, in the right to abort. Casey less so, but Roe was... Roe is the one that, st- that said you can't have abortion past viability. Right. Um, so by overturning this, even the liberal states could expand their, their, you know, their legal access to abortion. Sure, absolutely. And you know, we're already seeing here in the state of Florida, there's a, a state Supreme Court challenge to the state's abortion uh, law, which is very similar to the Mississippi law that the court upheld. I think it's a 15-week um, a ban after 15 weeks with exceptions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's being now challenged at the state court level um, through the state Supreme Court. And the precedent is such that the state judiciary has found that there is a right to an abortion in the state constitution. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it, it, that's what's going to happen. It's going to roll back to the state levels. Now, it's interesting. I just read a thing today where, you know, there's some lawyers that are saying, well, now that the the... The Supreme Court has done this, and I think it's time for the state to relook at how it views its constitution on this, mm-hmm. which is kind of dumb. I mean, why are we following the lead of the feds here? <laughs> Even when we don't have to, I get why we do and we have to. But as as far as the the law stuff goes, I'm I'm really I'm very agnostic when it comes to the um, to the actual nuts and bolts of the issue of abortion. I, right. I, I'm squeamish about making it illegal and having the state involved in it at all mm-hmm. while I'm very philosophically pro-life. And, and so yeah, I think my agnosticism on the state's involvement is it makes it a little easier for me to step back and kind of look at it more from a legal issue. And again, I think that something that is this contentious, something that we're never going to agree on, mm-hmm. how are we going to best come to some kind of terms that we can all live with 
And that's going to have to come by decentralizing it down and and allowing the states to to work these things out. And, you know, I think you'll find over time things will probably equalize to some degree. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how the policy plays out. But I think from just a legal standpoint, having the federal government say yes, no, maybe, I don't think that's really its place. It's certainly not its place to start, you know, row people. It's funny because people are upset that, that this somehow you know, undid democracy. Well, what's democratic about a court basically making law and policy on abortion? Right. That's not yeah. democracy. You know, that's that's as oligarchy as you can get right there. Well, you know, I think it also probably part of that is the unspoken rule, the assumption that it's government that grants rights. And that's right. obviously a mistake. But you have a lot of people who who are sort of under that impression. It doesn't occur to them that rights exist apart from the government and what they say. Right. I do want to point out, and uh, <laughs> Doug Stewart will appreciate this, I want to plug our book, Faith Seeking Freedom, because yeah. in the chapter on abortion, I do write out what can be done, what pro-life strategy can be done in both situations where abortion is legal and where it's illegal. And I think that that is going to become very important moving forward because the other thing that I'm noticing is that America, as far as the states are concerned, are pretty split. You've mm-hmm. got about 26 states that are planning to ban if they haven't already started their their bans because of trigger bans. Right. That's half the states. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, there's no reason to believe that we're going to have a 50-state consensus on this issue anytime in our lifetime, if not if not longer yeah. than that. Right. So it's probably a value for us to learn about how we can actually implement some pro-life strategy regardless of the legal status of abortion. Absolutely. And, and I think that's very important work because I think the whole issue has been framed so much yeah. um, in this statist framework. Yeah. And I think you've done fantastic work on trying to think outside of that dynamic and, and looking at it from a more uh, philosophical and, and non-statist standpoint. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely... Because this is not something that's ever going to be resolved right. through politics. Exactly. It's, it's just, it can't be. It's, it's, it can't too, be. it's too divisive. And I can sit here and make good arguments on either side of the issue. Mm-hmm. I can also make a lot of really bad arguments, <laughs> which, yeah. which I've seen some really bad arguments, um, particularly from from the uh, pro-choice side. Uh, some of the reasoning is uh, sketchy at best, but... Yeah, there's a whole lot of terrible reasoning, I think on both sides, if if I'm quite honest. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's very reductive, which is completely unhelpful. All right. Any other final thoughts before we wrap up? Well, you know, I just, I'm just going to reiterate that I think there are, here's my kind of, not fear, but the thing that kind of worries me in the way that I approach political activism, quote unquote, I think that this is going to encourage people to keep running to the courts. Mm. And I think that by and large, running to the courts is not the best strategy for liberty. Now, I'm not right. saying that it's always the bad strategy. I'm not saying that it won't you know, take you some steps forward. But I would really like to see folks invest more effort and energy into actually undermining some of this overreach of government as opposed to trying to get government to give us permission to do things. Right. As my friend Robert Scott Bell He's a guy in kind of the natural foods and homeopathy space. But uh, he is fond of saying, stop asking permission where none is required. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, in terms of, I think in particular, the folks that are Second Amendment advocates have done a really poor job in terms of Mm -hmm. trying to implement policy because they've relied so much on courts, courts, courts. And we could take down federal gun control just like that, simply by not enforcing it at the state level. Right. So I, I want to see more of that type of action, which literally undermines the government and makes it impossible for it to do what it wants to, rather than rolling the dice and hoping that the uh, federal employees over at the Supreme Court decide that they're going to limit federal power, because by and large, they don't. And even with these victories, uh, I think I sent you an article 
mm-hmm. that I just wrote um, about a couple of cases that the Supreme Court declined to hear that effectively give federal law enforcement officers complete immunity from prosecution. In one case, this guy actually tried to kill somebody. He was a uh, Department of Homeland Security agent. He tried to kill the dude because dude had found out that his uh, son was involved in some nefarious activities. And so the Homeland Security guy was basically using the cover of his authority to try to off this dude. Wow. Um, All of this came out and they weren't able to prosecute him. And the Supreme Court upheld it because they said that he has immunity because of his badge. Wow. And uh, so, you know, as good as the court has been on some of these issues, a right-leaning court is not going to be good when it comes to surveillance, when it comes to police state kind of things. Um, they're going to expand the power of of the police and the power of surveillance and those types of things. So yeah, that's the other kind of the difficulty as a libertarian with the left-right paradigm because there are policies on the left that are conducive to liberty. Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of say, well, it's all, you know, the Republicans are the right wing. That's where the liberty is. Well, mm-hmm. not so much. Not so, so much, yeah. I, I want to leave people with a bit of skepticism when it comes to the courts, when it comes to asking for permission. And uh, we really like to see people focus more in on what can I do to change things in my state, in my locality, and work through that instead of trying to make everything a, a federal case. You know? And we used to joke about that when I was a kid. Don't make a federal case out of it. Right. It was, it was quite wise for a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. I would love to see libertarians, especially in these states where the abortion bans are being enacted, I would love to see them take this as an imperative to reform the criminal justice system. Yeah. Because that's, you know, their major concern. The, the major concern of pro-choice libertarians is over enforcement They don't want the police state used. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I hope that they don't try to focus on the abortion issue. I hope that they take it as an imperative to finally reform the criminal justice system and go that route. That would be great. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. And for our listeners, please, of course, subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes or wherever you can. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys next time. Yep, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast.